Good morning, Living Faith. If you want to grab your Bibles and turn over to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to get started. Father in heaven, uh, we ask that you would bless this time in your word. Uh, we ask that you would uh, help us to see the glory of Christ revealed. We ask that you would help us to see all of the Old Testament expectations fulfilled in your Son. Help us this morning, Lord. Help us. We ask all of this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, well, Thanksgiving's come and gone, and Christmas is here. Uh, at least it is in my heart. Who put their tree up this week? Yeah, that's what's up. How many have how many's had it up since the first? That's what's up, right? Yeah. Uh, well, we've all kind of been expecting it, right? Everybody, did anybody live Christmas to Christmas? There's one hand, and it's a child. That checks out. Um, but uh, Christmas is, is, excel, is itself a season of expectation and fulfillment. Uh, expectation and fulfillment. And I know that because we all made Christmas lists, right? Uh, what do y'all want for Christmas this year? Nobody wants anything for, for Christmas? What do you want? Fantasy books? What else? Anything? Yeah? What? Oh, a big doll. I thought she said a big doll. And I'm like, I'm trying to get rid of the one that we have now. Um, but Christmas is a season of expectation and fulfillment. And what is a Christmas list that we make every year but expectation and fulfillment? You put forth the expectation, this is what I would like, and hopefully uh, you can get it on Christmas. Um, I love the books, the, the, the Gospels, um, and for their own kind of uh, character that they bring in the witness of Christ. You have John, who's like super concerned with the preeminence of Christ. You have Luke's detailed historicity of Christ's mission on earth. You have Mark, which is kind of like the 90-minute 80s action film where it just like drops you into the action, doesn't really explain itself, and says, here it is, and then it finishes, and you're just left in awe of what you've just witnessed. And then you have Matthew. Matthew as a gospel, as a whole and in its parts, are concerned with the expectation of the Messiah and the fulfillment of those expectations in the person of Christ. The Gospel of Matthew is a gospel about Jesus and that it is about expectation and fulfillment. And I want to unpack that this morning, but to do that, we have to use Matthew's expertise in the Old Testament. So I'm going to be referencing uh, the Old Testament a fair amount, but we need to keep that, that Matthew himself was a Jew, which we'll talk about here in a moment. Uh, but we'll, 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 we need to keep his expertise in the Old Testament in the back of our minds. Because this gospel is his testimony to his people. It is his testimony to the Jews that the prophesied Messiah had come in the person of Jesus Christ. 
that this man, this Jewish carpenter, Jesus, was not just an ordinary man, but he was the God-man. He was the eternally begotten Son of God. And Matthew goes through pains to explain this to his Jewish audience. He details both the natural genealogy and the supernatural birth of Jesus by the Virgin Mary through the conception of the Holy Spirit. Matthew's gospel is about expectation and fulfillment because he knows his people have been in expectation for thousands of years. Some of us, as I said earlier, we live vacation to vacation or Christmas to Christmas. We live our lives in a state of anticipation 364 days out of the year until the one day, you know, the day vacation begins or Christmas is here. That is nothing compared to the anticipation of the Jewish people waiting on God to fulfill his promises. The Jewish people were waiting on God to fulfill his promises. So what promises? What promises would be in mind? Well, Genesis 3, God promises Adam and Eve that a promised seed would come and that, would, that seed would crush the head of the serpent who had deceived their first parents into sin. In Deuteronomy 18, God promises that a prophet will come and that the people must listen to him. File that one away for later. In Psalm 110, God promises that a priest will come, one after the order of Melchizedek. And in Zechariah 9, God promises that a king will come. And actually, if you keep reading in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 21, he directly quotes this prophecy. In summary, the people are waiting on a Messiah. Not just a Messiah, the Messiah. Matthew's gospel focuses on expectation and fulfillment. Then, If it does, then that means the Messiah must have come. That all the Jews had been waiting for had finally come in the person of Jesus. And Matthew is writing to tell his fellow brothers and sisters to believe that this man was Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. That he is the fulfillment of every promise. My hope today is that you would see the glory of Christ revealed as Matthew wished his audience to see. And that you would see that his message is one of expectation and fulfillment. Now, Matthew is an interesting guy for this job because when we meet him in chapter 9, it seems that he's kind of given up on the dreams of God. That Matthew has forgotten the promises of the scriptures. He was a tax collector and a turncoat. He had you know, pretty much turned his back on his own people working for their oppressors. He was working for the Roman government. He was keeping company with a pretty rough crowd, yet Christ calls him and the Spirit grants Matthew faith and repentance. And he sees the Messiah for who he truly is. So Matthew has to be the right guy for the job because he too was a dejected Jew under the boot of the Romans who had seen Jesus, repented and believed, and would be an eyewitness testimony of the Messiah. 
He had seen prophecies fulfilled with his own eyes. He was a disciple. He had touched Jesus with his own hands, spoken to him, ate with him, prayed with him, and heard him preach. So how can he not want to share this good news that all of their expectations have been fulfilled? Often the writers of the gospel are called evangelists, and that is an appropriate title for Matthew because that is Matthew's mission. He wants them to see that all of the prophecies of the Messiah have been fulfilled. We can find a summary of that mission today in examining the transfiguration, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. So Matthew 17, uh, let us read the first 13 verses. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice of the cloud said, out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah came, already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had, been, had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Now, there's our text. Let us begin our examination. Uh, as we begin, we'll have to put a couple things in place that'll help us. Uh, first thing is our text starts with a time reference. It starts with a time reference of six days. From what? Six days later, from what? Uh, when you study the scriptures and you start doing what, you know, the fancy word is hermeneutics, but when you start studying the scriptures and, and looking at the words and the sections, you can come across some terminology. Uh, if you know me, I, you know I love my terms, so I'm going to give you two this morning. Uh, the first is meta-theology. Meta-theology, M-E-T-A, theology, which is the summarized theology of a book of the Bible. It's a summarized theology of a book of the Bible. Uh, the second word is a lot more fun to say, which is pericope. Pericope. If you hear my Concord flock snickering, it's because we talk a lot about pericopes at our flock. It's a discreet, self-contained story or teaching. It's a discreet, self-contained story or teaching. So your modern Bibles, if you have it in front of you, does a lot of the pericope heavy lifting 
uh, for you with the heading. So you can look now, if your Bible is open, maybe you see the heading saying the transfiguration. And then after that, it says the demoniac. And then after that, the tribute money. So the Bible in your hand does a lot of that work for you. But the pericopes contribute to the whole. The best way... Um, I could illustrate this was, uh, this is going to make me uh, really popular in the eyes of the children, but the first thing that came to mind was Megazord. Uh, If you've ever watched Power Rangers, when in the end they have to defeat the big bad guy, each Power Ranger assembles into a giant mechanical robot that will defeat the bad guy. Uh, So uh, Megazord, the combined whole, would be the meta-theology and the pericope are the Power Rangers that make up each section. If Megazord is the meta-theology of expectation and fulfillment in Matthew, then the Power Rangers are the pericopes building with each story across his gospel. So you have the whole and then you have the parts that contribute to the whole. When he says six days later, he's in reference to the pericopes that come before. These are going to help you see the flow of the text. His message is fulfillment of the messianic expectation and everything that's come before and will after will either subtly or not so subtly point to that. So turn to chapter 16. Depending on your Bible, you may not have to. But in chapter 16, there's a couple pericopes that will help us understand what's coming next. Uh, The first that I'd like to highlight is that Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ. He confesses confesses that Jesus is the Christ. He says, Simon Peter, this is chapter 16, verse 16, answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In the next section, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. He foretells his death and resurrection. That's going to come up again in Matthew 17 and then the final one is that Jesus tells the disciples that he the son will return in glory out of that six days later three of the disciples get a glimpse of that glory so back to our text six days from what six days from the previous pericopes the previous conversations. Jesus goes up to a mountain and he brings Peter, James, and John with him. Now really quick, this is such a testimony to the forgiveness of Christ because if you're familiar with when Jesus or when Peter proclaims Jesus to be the the Christ, that the next thing that happens when he foretells his death and resurrection, Jesus or Peter tries to rebuke Jesus. Right? So he offends the Lord, but then the Lord forgives him and invites him to see his glory. Though he offended Christ, Christ forgives Peter and brings him along. The other two would be James and John, the sons of thunder, the first disciple to die and the last disciple to die. Verse 2, and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. So what is happening here? What's happening is that the glory of Christ is revealed. 
the veil of Christ's humanity is temporarily removed so that a brief glimpse of the glory of God shines forth. The glory that this trio of disciples witnesses is the glory of the triune God. The Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity and Unity, share the same divine nature. They are co-equal and co-eternal in glory, honor, and power, and strength. R.C. Sproul comments on this passage that the glory that Peter, James, and John beheld on the mountain was not a reflection. So where our moon has no light on its own, but rather it only can reflect the light of the sun, it's not like that. It came from inside him. The source of being was Christ. And the disciples witnessed the glory of God, the glory of the triune God. And what, what is this, this glory that, that it's the, this man is also God? Um, Paul has a testimony. There's two testimonies to this, this glory that we have in mind. The first is in Colossians 1 and the second is in Hebrews 1. Uh, 115 through 16 to be exact for Colossians. He writes about Christ, who is the invisible image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. A couple verses later, he writes of Jesus, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the person of Jesus Christ. He was both God and man, having a divine and hum human nature. And in Matthew 17, we see the curtain of that human nature pulled back just enough, and it still lights up the mountain. The unnamed author of Hebrews writes in these last days, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, In these last days God spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory, in the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory in the exact representation of his nature. This word in the Greek uh, can be translated as brightness um, or having the quality of sending out rays of light. Having the quality of sending out rays of light. If Christ is the radiance of the Father's glory, then the beams of light sent forth of his glory is exactly what Peter, James, and John are witnessing. Verse 3 of our text, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Uh, the motif of expectation and fulfillment is kicked in overdrive uh, by the appearance of Moses and Elijah. Uh, you can imagine 
being a Jew in the first century, the, reading this testimony of one of the you know, Messiah's disciples, and if it's already not crazy enough that this carpenter is illuminating like a supernova, uh, two Old Testament heroes just show up and they start to talk with him. And it's not just any two old heroes of the Old Testament, but it's Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets themselves. For the Jews, Moses and Elijah uh, could be considered figureheads of their prospective departments. Uh, they could be considered figureheads for the law and the prophets. Moses, the law, although he was a prophet, but Moses for the law and Elijah for the prophets. Luke actually records Jesus' own testimony to this in chapter 24 of his gospel. It's a famous passage I'm sure you're familiar with. He says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Luke also records the transfiguration in his gospel. And there he mentions that they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to fulfill at Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah show up and they're discussing with the Lord Jesus his departure, which he was about to fulfill. The sum of the law and prophets pointed to the coming of the Messiah. And now these two, the figureheads we could consider, are seeing their expectation fulfilled in the incarnation. In the incarnation of Jesus. We referenced earlier Deuteronomy 18 where Moses, God promises uh, through Moses that they would send, uh, he would send another prophet. Here he is looking him in the eye. Thousands of years later. Moving on to verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Uh, Mark's account of the transfiguration says Peter didn't really know what to say because he was terrified. Luke's record says that he didn't even really know what he was saying. Um, the point is that he was so terrified that he didn't know what to say, but he said something anyways, making Peter the most relatable person in Scripture for us. But he asked if he should build three tabernacles for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And his answer comes from nobody who was standing right there. Uh, his answer comes from the Father. He asked this question and then in verse 5, he receives an answer. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And right here, you have so much coming from Exodus and Deuteronomy that his readers' minds are 
firing probably, you know, a billion miles a, a minute with all the Old Testament references. First, you have a bright cloud overshadowing the top of a mountain. We read about that in Exodus uh, 24 a few moments ago. We have, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is a reference. This is the second time we've heard this in the Gospel of Matthew. If you read in Matthew 3 of his baptism, this happens there as well. And then you have the addition where he says, this is my son, listen to him. Again, Deuteronomy 18, the prophet who will come and you must listen to him. And from this cloud of glory saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Matthew's pen is now asking his audience, are you getting it yet? Are you getting it yet? All of our expectations are fulfilled in him. Everything that we've been reading in the Law and Prophets, everything that we've been singing in the Psalms, they are met in the person of Jesus Christ. He is not just man. He is God. He is the promised seed who has come to crush the head of the serpent. Two of my friends, three of my friends were on this mountain and they saw his unveiled glory. The glory and majesty of God in Jesus Christ. Three different men also hear that part there where he says, this is my son. Peter would go on to write about it. Uh, in one of his letters, he writes in 2 Peter 2, 16 through 8, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we're from, we we're, were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, this is Peter's testimony, heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now what happens next? Verses 6 through 8, 9 and 10 through 13. Um, after hearing the father's voice, the disciples collapse in terror. Um, they collapse in terror. If you read your Bible, that kind of reaction is pretty par for the course. Suddenly though... After this moment, the Lord Jesus Christ puts the veil back on and tells them to stand up. He says here that Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. So then they descend the mountain and they have a couple conversations. The second conversation is about more expectation and fulfillment concerning Elijah but the first conversation is about the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's about the death and resurrection of Jesus. So as I mentioned earlier in a previous pericope or section, Matthew 16, 21 through 23, Jesus foretells his sufferings, his death and resurrection. Here in this chapter, he tells them to tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now their heads are already spinning. They've just witnessed something that they probably, I mean, Peter can't hardly even speak. But they've seen the glory of 
God unveiled in this man, and yet he's going to suffer and die? He's going to suffer and die and then resurrect? Uh, This is an expectation that when this part of the story hasn't come to be fulfilled yet, and that's leaving them with the prospect of death looming over them, that this man, their friend, the Messiah, was going to suffer and die. But Jesus, in foretelling of his death, is setting the expectation of the fulfillment from another prophet, Isaiah. Isaiah writes of a suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions, that he would be crushed by God and punished for the wickedness that was not his own. Jesus is telling his disciples that the time has come for that to be fulfilled and that Matthew will tell his audience a few chapters later that it was indeed fulfilled, that the expectation of a suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah and then his resurrection prophesied in Psalm 16 would be fulfilled when Jesus is crucified and resurrected three days later. This is the expectation and fulfillment in Christ. As Evan explained earlier, this is why we've adapted our liturgy or changed it for the Advent season. That the gospel message is not just for Jews, but it's for Gentiles. That it's not for a nation and a people, but for all nations and all peoples. So for the next five weeks, we will take time to pray prayers of expectation and realization and read the scriptures of prophecy and fulfillment because all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. This is why we're doing it. We will take time to dwell on the wonderful plan of redemption as it unfolds and and finds its resolution in Jesus Christ. So take, for example, today, Galatians 3.10 through 14, and De- or Deuteronomy 21 and Galatians 3.10 through 14. That although this is a law, it becomes a prophecy and fulfillment in the person of Christ. I'll read it again. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Church, Jesus Christ became a curse for you. Jesus Christ became a curse for you. We celebrate Christmas to remember the birth of Christ, but we would do well to remember that he was born to die. That he was born to die for you and for his glory. You were cursed 
under the law, unable to keep its commands. But although Christ kept every command, he became a curse for you. This man, whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, became a curse for your salvation. For your salvation. That all of the expectations of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ for His glory and your salvation. So, quickly as we wrap up, some applications. First application is to make much of Christ this season. Take the time to make much of Christ this season. Prioritize family worship. Read your Bible. Pray over uh, the hurry and hustle of the Christmas season. Uh, prioritize those things over the hurry and hustle of the Christmas season. Uh, read some practical things. Read the story of Christ's birth before you open presents. Read John 1 before each meal with your extended families. Memorize the catechism questions and prayers. But make much of Christ in your family, with your friends, to those who shop, uh, those you meet while you shop for Christmas presents. Make much of Christ. Make much of Christ. And secondly, rest in Christ. Rest in Christ. Christ has become a curse so that we would receive faith by the Spirit. Rest in His finished work. Rest in His perfect life and His death and in His resurrection. He could not be held down by death, but He resurrected and that His work is done. Uh, you're likely going to be busier this part of the year than any other. Um, and the temptation is to subject yourself to the happiness of others. There's a lot of us who do that, where we subject ourselves to the happiness of others. Food has to be perfect. Presents have to be perfect. Clothes for family photos have to be perfect. You have to be perfect, or your mom and dad are going to start jabbering about how insufficient you are as a child. Rest in Christ. Your identity is in none of these things. Your identity is in Christ. Rest in Him. You can make much of Christ by resting in His finished work. Every expectation has been fulfilled in Christ. The Jews who believed were now able to enter that rest set before them, and I implore you to do the same. If you have not repented, if you have not believed in the finished work of Christ, I would love to talk to you about it more. Uh, Pastor Jim, Pastor Daniel, we would love to talk to you about this more. If you have questions about, is Jesus really who he says he is? We would love to talk to you about that more. If you have questions about works under the law, how you've been working trying to make yourself righteous and it's just not enough we would love to talk to you about that more let us pray
Father in heaven, we thank you for the Messiah. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his birth and his life, his death and his resurrection. We thank you that all the promises you give find their yes in him. Help us, Lord, to believe that. Help us, Lord, to remember that. Help us, Lord, to, uh, to rest in that. Lord, we thank you for the many gifts that you have given us. We thank you for our faith. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the regeneration that you've made us alive in Christ. We are grateful, Lord, and help us each and every day to be grateful for you, for you and your son's work and the Spirit's application of that work in our hearts.